Global Indigenous Rights Advocate and Trailblazer for Cultural Heritage Preservation, who saw the first Aboriginal Australian to be appointed to a United Nations agency, Henrietta Marie A.M., has just had another accolade added to her many achievements and recognitions. University of South Australia's Distinguished Alumni Award. Happy to say, Andreta Marie A.M. has just joined us on NITV Radio to explore the significance of this recognition. Henrietta Marie, first of all, congratulations and welcome to NITV Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, this is an accolade acknowledging uh, your achievements in uh, the many areas uh, of your illustrious career. But if there's uh, one aspect I'd like us to first focus on, first and uh, foremost, is uh, a new tool you developed together with your husband, identifying and measuring uh, and also monitors institutional racism. Um, this is something extremely important, especially considering uh, the current uh, context. Uh, tell us about uh, this new tool. Yes, um, it, it came about through um, an investigation some years ago when we, uh, through our company, uh, looked at the discrimination within the hospital sector. From that, we had come to the conclusion that it was more of an institutional uh, racism um, that was happening, and we we needed to find out how that would, how we would explore that. So what we then did was we certainly we investigated to see whether there had been a tool designed out there on a national, international scale, and. Uh, coming to the conclusion that there was not so we decided that we would um, we would work on a tool that we could um, ourselves use and that would be on uh, identifying, monitoring uh, institutional racism in the hospital health services uh, throughout Queensland. And is that uh, replicable in other areas? Because, it uh, is. Yeah, yeah, because this is something that uh, should be uh, replicated and uh, uh, disseminated right across the country, if not even the world where, you know, institutional racism exists. Uh, yes, it can be adapted to other areas such as gender, disability, education, justice, etc. And we have had uh, a number of inquiries uh, from other countries actually asking about the tool and wanting to again use that tool uh, in in their own country so and we we just had a a discussion only a few days ago uh, with uh, someone in Canada to also apply the tool um, there in what they were doing Now, coming back to your latest accolade, uh, recognition at uh, the University of South Australia Alumni Awards, it appears uh, most of the people who are recognised uh, on the awards night uh, were recognised for their work and achievements uh, in uh, heritage preservation. You've achieved a lot of fast and uh, done a lot of work in that area, especially to sustain a you know, cultural diversity across uh, Northern Australia. Tell us more about uh, your work in that area. I have been engaged in, in scholars for the birth of genetic resource use and traditional knowledge of Indigenous people in Australia before I, I left to go to to the UN. Uh, the UN job was I, I actually applied for the position that came up with the Convention on Biological Diversity Secretariat. Uh, in Montreal, and uh, I, I, I 
got noticed that I had been successful, and that was in 1996. So we went um, to live in Canada, and of course, um, that's where the Secretary on the Convention of Biological Diversity. For me, it was a very important job. It's really about um, biological diversity, life on Earth, um, you know, and our planet. When I first took it on, uh, uh, first two weeks in the job, I was sent to um, San Diego, Chile, for for a UN meeting, and uh, that was pretty scary at first because I had never travelled in that part of the world, and uh, I uh, at that time I didn't not have any Spanish. Um, of course, you know that Montreal is a French-speaking part of um, Canada. Canada, yeah. And, um, and uh, I did have some French, but not not a lot. So I had to again relearn um, that uh, French and and get a little bit more comfortable with, with French. But uh, mainly, I was working with a lot of the Spanish-speaking countries, and um, therefore, you know, I, I decided to take on Spanish. I'm not very good at it, but communication-wise, it was uh, it was needed for me to to be able to get by. The job that I was responsible for was Articles 8J, 10C, 17.2 and 18.4. And these were really, really um, important in terms of Indigenous and local communities around the world. And that those articles specifically reference Indigenous and local communities. My very first meeting that I was responsible for was in Madrid, Spain. Yeah. And at that meeting, we discussed a number of things, intellectual property, uh, access and benefit sharing, and indigenous and local communities' participation within the UN uh, Convention. And so we achieved all that. Um, the, the And also to set up a working group on Article 8J that would really discuss and debate um, these issues that arises in terms of indigenous local communities and the biological resources, which we know are very much part of their uh, spirituality, their cultures, their traditions, and the way they relate to the uses of genetic resources for food, for agriculture, and for medicinal property. The importance of my job, I guess, was to ensure that I was well briefed on the information I got. So. It was all about collecting data uh, with the most updated information I could possibly have from all over the globe, from policies, legislation, etc. That allowed me to be able to write a much more informed paper for discussion and deliberation by parties who were signatories to that convention. I, I guess that from the first meeting in Madrid, we did achieve to address the at our open-ended working group on Article 8J. We also um, achieved the need to take further the intellectual property and benefit sharing issues of Indigenous and local communities uh, within the guidelines of the Convention of Biological Diversity and uh, also the participation. Uh, and that was participation was really through the ad hoc open-ended working group. WIPO, uh, after we had the COP meeting in Bratislava, those recommendations were further deliberated and supported uh, by um, the, the parties. That then allowed WIPO to take under its wing the further discussion under the Inter Intergovernmental Committee, which was set up on the um, traditional knowledge 
and intellectual property and particularly um, again with re- reference to genetic resource use and benefit sharing so that that discussion now is part of uh, further discussion under WIPO uh, at the time I was there I also designed the um, under the WIPO Academy a um, master's course on Indigenous people and intellectual property Is it still there today? From what I believe it's still yeah, is there today and um but oh, of course it's been updated and revamped so um, I'm not sure where it's at uh, in terms of how many people are actually taken on that course. I guess that's uh, not all. You also acknowledged uh, in uh, really being instrumental in uh, the development of uh, other guidelines. I can think of uh, uh, the environmental social impact assessments of uh, developments and uh, things are ranging to the protection of sacred sites. So these were some of the, um, I guess, acknowledgements. Um, I mean, achievements I did. Plus, I get another big achievement while I was with the um, CBD was the Acrogon Guidelines, which I had drafted uh, for discussion and deliberation by the party, which had been accepted and gone through. And it's Acrogon Guidelines is AKWE, AKWE, uh, KON, so you know you can, and that was the, the guidelines that was for the conduct of cultural, environmental, and social impact assessments regarding developments that proposed to take place on, uh, or which are likely to impact on sacred sites and on lands and waters traditionally occupied or used by indigenous and local communities. And that was, uh, I guess, the, the achievement that I um, that. I was able to see the areas in which I was able to achieve in and uh, make it happen. And these guidelines can be used globally. Um, I'm yet to see it being recognised and used more broadly here in Australia. Uh, I know other countries have used it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're doing more research, uh, leading an Australia Research Council project at uh, the University of Queensland. And about this research, uh, it said that you said if Aboriginal peoples are to move forward, their unique knowledge must be preserved at an economic level so they can be rewarded for their expertise and it can benefit the nation. And you say it's been done in the arts, which has contributed immensely to Australia to the Australian economy. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this for us? In, in the arts, there's a code, code of practice that's uh, given in terms of um, making sure that the artist's work is, is certainly done by an indigenous person. With the areas of cultural resources uh, relating to mainly the bush food industry, it's really important for us to also ensure that there's some kind of practice or code uh, that would show that um, when it's used, it's actually being used by Indigenous people. It is an Indigenous product that that grows locally and uh, grows in, in this country and it's now used. I mean, there's a lot of examples of that. You you have the um, kakadu plum and the saltbush and so forth. So many, many of these I know have been um, either now become instrumental in making jam, chutney, uh, or putting together herbs and spices from the land, from this country. And these are now used quite uh, 
broadly in, in certainly in the restaurant uh, industry. Uh, what we're also seeing is that many of these products, such as um, the uh, some of the products are now taking place internationally or other companies have um, taken these plant species to grow in their own country and the finger line is, is a classic example that that's really gone uh, internationally you know besides the, the macadamia which had certainly it, it, it's from Australia uh, and it's um, the other countries overseas, particularly in Hawaii and elsewhere, have, have taken it on, uh, and it's um, but it's actually a recognised plant species from this country. Yeah. Same with the finger lime; it's, it's from this country, and now it's taken internationally. So what we're seeing is many of our products that we would use are being shipped across the country. But Indigenous people themselves, from where these uh, originally come from, have not been given any kind of benefit sharing, or there has not been any uh, access and benefit sharing arrangements being sorted out with them. And we know that, you know, while we have the land and we have the knowledge base on a lot of these resources, um, how do we ensure that we can make use of this? to be able to build our own local economy, ensure jobs in our regions and have all of this pretty much controlled and managed by the Indigenous people themselves. Many Indigenous people have now taken on uh, wild harvesting, so they are uh, harvesting uh, some of the products such as the um, kakadu plum uh, is being harvested, not just throughout NP but also throughout the Kimberley region. But again, these are small uh, groups that are, are, have taken it on. It allows local groups in that area to hold a job uh, for a certain period. But in order to process it further, they have to have a, a third party and, and therefore to either freeze it or um, dry it. And then again, these can be made into chutney and jams or tea, etc. I guess for that to work uh, properly, you would need to pull in, uh, to build capacity and pull in uh, more resources, including uh, financial resources. There's a need for more finance to be given to Indigenous local communities who want to use their knowledge base and understanding of the genetic resources within their region uh, to be able to create businesses. But, you know, what's happening now, despite all this, Despite only being um, the, the, uh, the controlling 22% of the world's land, uh, Indigenous territories uh, protect 80% of the planet's biodiversity. So these lands are um, also estimated to, uh, to contain 36% of the world's remaining intact forests. And that was a data by the World Bank some time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so uh, while we can advocate for biodiversity, for biodiversity sake, it really will take the extinct, um, extinction to really set straight what is happening and the fact that we need to use this. Because many of us, what's happening is at the moment, we are seeing a rapid loss of species. We are seeing 
exists today, which is estimated by experts to be between 1,000 and 10,000 times higher than the natural extinction rate. So if we lose our, our natural resources, we are going to suffer because we rely on these natural resources, not just for food and um, agriculture, but also for our pharmaceutical drugs. Yeah. You know, because much of these drugs are discovered uh, from wild species. It always has been. And it'll continue to be one of the most critical for us on Earth to, to continue this, particularly towards our health care and disease prevention and wellness. Yeah. So if we lose our natural resources, we lose access to building our businesses. Yeah. And, and not just indigenous businesses, I'm talking non-indigenous businesses. And can you elaborate a bit more on how this affects uh, not only indigenous businesses but also non-indigenous businesses and uh, our economy overall? So our economy and, and, and driving our business forward depends very much on a lot of nature. And these are biological resources, they're the resources they are extracting from the land. Uh, there's development, so you see more of uh, these meant to block buildings going up, you know. Um, and, and what's happening is habitats are actually disappearing because of the uh, ploughing in terms of agriculture or the concrete that are being slapped on the land. So we continue to impoverish nature and deprive ourselves of any potential medicines or better agricultural products because we're not use, we're not actually using them in a way that is sustainable. And that's in terms of non-Indigenous, but for us as Indigenous people, much of these resources are part of who we are. They're also a, our, our identity. They're part of who we are, or as I am as a Yidinji woman. It's my identity as a Yidinji woman. But if my sight and the river systems are no longer there, if they've been built upon and crossed over, or if the, we lose our biological diversity, which gives us our food and our medicine, we lose who we are. You know, it, we are losing part of us that goes with it. We may never get that back unless we get the resources to be able to extract what we can and also uh, build on what we know and, and put it somehow, uh, safeguard it in the space. And a database is so important. But a database is, use is useless if we cannot do something with those products and practice using it on a daily or monthly basis. Yeah, the database will just be collecting dust on shelves, uh, whereas yeah. uh, you need practical uses of that database. And uh, this research is uh, ongoing uh, with the University of Queensland. How far are you in uh, the project? Uh, is it about to end? How far are you? We've only just started in June um, of this year. We still have a year and a half to go before we complete that. But again we will only be touching surface in terms of what we probably what we will achieve with that uh, it's certainly a good project I mean, what we're exploring are the kind of databases that's out there uh, what we want to do then is work with uh, the local communities particularly in the 
North Queensland area to, um, to basically find out uh, whether they find them what 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 um, type of database system do they want? Yeah. So they have they then make the decision uh, on the kind of database system that once needs to be set up within their region. So having to give a number of options for for them to look at would basically allow them to make much better informed decision on what could work for them, and that is so important uh, to have them make that decision. At the same time. We want the databases to not just sit idle, but that the government can also have access to it in order to, if we can protect our knowledge base, that somehow when, if a patent is uh, asked for in a, on a particular plant, uh, and if we are using that plant for a particular medicinal property within that, or just as part of our local food source that we would have we want to be able to uh, again um, you know it's up to us and in in what we do with it and how we how we share that with with others and that knowledge base is important and it also will allow hopefully using the existing intellectual property laws to be able to protect that and I think that's another big um, challenge for us uh, at the moment is how do we change how do we engage with government, particularly in the patents area and the plant breed strike area? We have not really investigated that channel of protection or allowing indigenous rights to be enforced within those two systems of law. And this is something that we need to, uh, again, acknowledge and we need to then work out how do we do, how do we use those laws, existing laws, or do we need to uh, have another sui generis law that will allow the protection of the uses of genetic resources? Wow, you say there's no protection and yet the products are being used. How widely are they being used? Many of these products have already been used in the medicinal property area and we have never been able to actually get any kind of benefit sharing arrangements um, in, in a formal way. This is something that governments need to work with us on. And at the moment, there's a lot of focus on on management of these lands and these resources, but there's no focus on how do, how do we involve and engage Indigenous people themselves in this country to be able to use the resources which they have used for, for centuries and um, for not just for food and agriculture, but for also the medicinal property yeah, and yeah, therefore yeah. work out some kind of arrangements on, on the benefit sharing side of things. And these are some of the most uh, lucrative businesses and I'd say that uh, actually more than 60 or 70% of uh, active principles in medicine is uh, plant-derived or synthesized but it's uh, always plant-derived So, and the benefits go to the pharmaceutical and these big conglomerates, nothing to the traditional owners or people in the land who nurture and uh, protect those species. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And this isn't just a national issue here in Australia. It's a global issue right now. But in some countries they have recognised local communities and Indigenous people's um, ownership over some of these materials. So it's about how do we do that here? Because if we don't 
if we don't protect these resources, we lose every element of what our cultural traditions are. At the same time, Western country loses out because they can no longer access the medicinal property that are within these plant species or within the species out in the reef. If we lose all of this, uh, we lose our right to survive um, as a nation. Or oh, this country will never, we will never be the same around the world. We, we will never be living in, in the, and enjoying what we enjoy today. Um, so there's a need to really look at protection, um, biodiversity. There's a need to engage more with um, First Nations people in this country. And um, there certainly needs to be a committee set up to really explore some kind of arrangement with government in how we can effectively use both international instruments and the legal system in this country to ensure that we are reaping the benefits, um, the monetary benefits from the uses of these resources that um, it still belongs to us. But under law, uh, in particularly the state of Queensland, most of these genetic resources belong to the, the Crown. And um, for us to access it, we've got to go to a permit system if we want to use it for any kind of monetary purposes. Well, we can only use um, the traditional properties or the, the plants um, and the fruit that we get for our consumption, but we can't use it for monetary purposes unless we go through the process of working with the national parks and getting a permit, permit to, to do that. And again, there's a lot of money involved in, in going through how do we develop that into some kind of monetary uh, form that we will benefit from and you know so yeah so there's, there's a still a lot of work to do yeah. um, it's something that we can't do on our own we do need others to support us on this and we need the government to clearly see uh, that th we can move forward and build our local economy and help build the national economy in this country as we have done for for many years um, since colonisation. Yeah, and my last question, you're a Queenslander, you're working with a university in Queensland, and uh, the award is uh, bestowed to you by the University of South Australia. Uh, just uh, your connection to this university, maybe just to give a word to our listeners, uh, some information about your connection to the University of South Australia. Uh, thanks for that question. When I did my first degree, that's where I actually went to. I I decided to leave Keynes and go to Adelaide to study at University of South Australia. Back then, I, it was the Underdale campus of the CAE, and I did my first diploma of teaching. But from there, I went and did graduate uh, degree uh, diploma in, uh, again, Aboriginal studies, but in that program we did a lot there was a lot of the courses which related to um, the comparative bit studies between us um, Canada First Nations, US First Nations uh, and New Zealand and there was also a course which I had done in terms of institutional racism so I got to understand a lot more about uh, the, the, that structured impact 
on people's lives, uh, which we relate to as uh, institutional racism. And that's where pretty much I learned a lot more about myself in terms of my cultural connection to my own people, the Yiringi people in Cairns. It really started me on my journey, and, and one of those journeys were first up is um, finding out that South Australian Museum had, uh, they had about uh, over 30,000 items from Indigenous communities uh, around Australia, and they also had many of the items from my region, from Yidindian Kunganji heritage uh, in North Queensland in Cairns. Uh, so I, uh, I was exploring that, and that's really when I realised that most of this material that's been collected by anthropologists um, had been pretty much their material or they claimed it as theirs and therefore they had the rights to it. I was arguing that they had taken it without a permission uh, and these institutions basically held them uh, in trust for us, but in trust, but we never knew they existed uh, within these institutions. It's not just the object, it's the written information that goes with it. And I guess understanding that, um, also understanding just how these were managed uh, under the South Australian law, to do, uh, which governed the South Australian Museum, uh, I started to analyse much of these laws and policies that really govern our material and basically um, Stating, uh, who actually owns this and one of my um, you know they became the beneficiaries of our knowledge and our our history and our information and I wanted to see changes in that I wanted to see changes in the employment and training sector so that indigenous people would be working within these institutions um, to manage these artifacts and information that were there but also then to be able to be empowered to go back into their own communities and set something up to be able to have these repatriated. So I was very much in that area. So most of my focus has been on analysis of laws and policy that govern us and our lives, but also our information. And that led me to then genetic resources, biological diversity, uh, and also the arts, where I wrote a lot on. So while I was studying, I started publishing uh, or presenting at major conferences where I'd be the only Aboriginal person uh, presenting uh, and I got so used to that and then I started um, on the international area and understanding, understanding in the Convention of Biological Diversity which led me to um, applying for the position that came up and got me to um, Montreal, Canada and then after that I spent nine years working with a US based philanthropy in Palo Alto, California so, you know, 15 years of uh, working internationally uh, and then coming home, uh, I see the journey started with my ancestors sent me to South Australia where I, I needed to go to find these objects and information and to be able to set myself up in terms of understanding the policies and laws which continue to govern us uh, the way they had governed us when we were institutionalised on the third uh, in North Queensland, so it certainly paved the way for me. It was where it gave me the strength to be able to challenge these systems. It gave me the opportunity to really um, understand uh, what 
I wanted to do and where I wanted to go in terms of um, the way um, Indigenous people's uh, lives were being managed and controlled. Henrietta Marie, thank you very much for joining us on NITV Radio today. And once again, congratulations on uh, winning a prestigious award. Thank you very much.